I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each episode, I talk with someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world too. But fair warning, I also rock out to Eric B. and Rakim and the Foo Fighters and everything in between. So no matter what kind of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Mr. Brian Young, a touring bassoonist and co-founder of the Poulenc Trio. Brian serves as the principal bassoonist of the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra and is a member of the Iris Orchestra in Memphis, Tennessee. He's been a winner and a finalist in competitions, including the Gillette International Bassoon Competition and the ARD International Music Competition in Munich. Brian has performed as a soloist with the Baltimore Symphony and the National Symphony Orchestra. He is a great guy, and I'm really, really happy to introduce you to my new friend, Mr. Brian Young. Mr. Brian Young, I would like to welcome you to How Music Can Save Your Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Brendan. All right. That's, hey, I like the way that sounds. It's good stuff. How is it that you got started playing bassoon? And, and was there a particular person or an event that inspired you? You know, we just really want to hear your story. Sure, absolutely. So, so many people that inspired me along the way. So happy to talk about that. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I came up in the time, you know, I was, I'm a child of the uh, the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and music in Washington, D.C. had been taken out of the public schools when I was Ouch. coming through. Yeah, so um, my brother and I grew up very close to the D.C. Youth Orchestra program. So our parents took us over. I've got a father who was a trumpet major in college, didn't, didn't go to be professional, but that was a real lifelong interest of his. And so we went over to the D.C. Youth Orchestra program, which had been started as a way to fill that gap in the D.C. public school systems. And so I started, actually, I started on the violin, which is uh, relevant to some of the things that we're talking about today, I guess. And uh, so as a as a seven-year-old kid would, would schlep over on Saturdays and Thursday nights and, and learn my little Mississippi hot dog, Suzuki uh, <laughs> things. But right next to the violin class, there was a bassoon class. And that just, you know, the instrument captivated me, the sound, the way it looked. I thought it looked hilarious as a, as a little kid. And so I begged my parents, you know, for years, I was too young, <laughs> that, you know, to try out the bassoon. And so finally, on my 11th birthday, I was uh, offered the chance to go try it. And, you know, I haven't looked back since then. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, years, years spent there. You know, real shout outs to to some of the, the leaders there, Lynn McLean, the founder of the DC Youth Orchestra program, and folks like Alfonso Pollard, who were were there at the time conducting. You know, and then, you know, that just started a whole list of people that were were influential in bringing me into the world of classical music and uh, helping me along the way. 
Okay. So your, your, your father was a trumpet player, and I'm assuming that music was in the house all the time. It was. And, and I, t- I took after a lot of things from my father. So, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a dual-hatted person with, with the bassoon and also working in the tech industry. And he was working for, for Xerox at the time also doing some, some tech. And so there was music in the house for sure. There were early, you know, computers and electronic things in the house. And, and so a lot of that just washed over me and influenced me as a, as a young person. That is awesome. Wow. Because, uh, yeah, I, I am a former band director as well as a orchestra director. And normally kids don't gravitate toward bassoon right away. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, in a lot of, lot of cases, the bassoon is the, the, the instrument that's left over or, you know, someone who's playing clarinet gets tasked with it. But no, it was, it was something that was kind of from the jump for me. That is awesome. Wow. That's great. Early on in your career, what was one of the most significant challenges that you faced and how did you overcome it? Sure. Uh, well, one of them was the, the idea that, you know, as our family wasn't wealthy, you know, my, uh, my mom, uh, school teacher, my dad in electronics, but not, you know, in any kind of particularly high up position. And so music is an expensive proposition, getting lessons, the bassoon especially, you know, a double reed instrument and so lots of supplies, reed supplies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Even getting an instrument that was, um, that was playable was a challenge. So again, you know, all along the way, there were angels that sort of stepped in with help and that kind of thing. That, of course, was an, an early challenge. Also, I mean, the idea of being a young black kid in in classical music, and uh, you know the youth orchestra was certainly a place where there were a lot of folks that that looked like me. Still, a lot of folks that are are in the industry today that that um, you know I, I get to perform with in some cases. But you know the idea of sort of feeling like an outsider, and and uh, especially going into music school and and some of the early experiences sort of playing in orchestras and things like that you know this idea that you kind of had to represent a little more than than some others might uh, so those were interesting interesting ideas that was an extremely diplomatic way that you put that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. They're going. You get a point. That was awesome. <laughs> well, that's something you learned. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, we could talk. We'll talk. Right. Right. <laughs> so everybody has at least one person whose uh, interaction really changed them for the better and put you on the course that you're currently on. Maybe an old band director or former teacher. Who who was that person for you? And tell us about that. If I could, I'll I'll talk to two people. One is my first um, college teacher. Her name is Linda Harwell, and Linda was the was the assistant principal bassoon player in the National Symphony. I met her in still in high school, and. You know, I started studying with her there, just a person who had an extreme amount of care uh, for her students. And when I started at the Peabody Conservatory as an undergrad, Linda was starting, it was her first year as a teacher there as well. And so that was fortuitous for me, certainly, because I was her only student there for, for the first year or so. And that level of just care and feeding and attention was really crucial 
I definitely think that that she was an important influence. Also, my band director. So I came through, I went through Eleanor Roosevelt High School in Maryland. It's kind of a science and and a music magnet school. And the band director there, Sally Wagner, also just incredible energy and love for music and love for making sure that young people have what they need to to succeed. I've always taken that as an inspiration. That is awesome. That's great. What is your perception of the climate for musicians of color? And do you feel like there is a divide between white musicians and non-white musicians? That's an interesting question. So I, I, I think that, I think it's a complicated issue. I think that uh, certainly when I started and I you know started at Peabody, uh, in the 90s. And I remember going to orchestra rehearsals, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra rehearsals. And before that, growing up in DC, going to National Symphony rehearsals. And it was uh, striking how the people who were playing my instrument never looked like me. They mm-hmm. never did. And nothing against those folks that are, that are you know, have been pretty uniformly you know, generous and lovely and, and supportive. But in terms of looking and seeing that representation not there. You know, I was never going to be, you know, a guy in the back uh, with uh, the the gray hair. And I I was just never going to look like that. And so it was hard for me to see myself there. And that actually affected the choices that I made. I never, I actually never auditioned for those, for those things because it didn't seem like a path that was open. Wow, Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be I'm going to be a bassoon soloist. I'm going to be a bassoon chamber musician because that seemed like just a, a a a path that I could open myself, and I didn't have to kind of go into some of those 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 other spaces. And so that's just kind of the personal story. And I've heard other people of color talk about just the idea of not seeing people that look like them. I, I think that's changing a little bit mm-hmm. these days. I work with a couple organizations that are that are specifically trying to to change that. I'm thinking about you know, so for instance, uh, Chamber Music America. Uh, I serve on the board there, and they've they've had a real push to bring diversity to the forefront in the chamber music field. I work with an organization also on the board called the Boulanger Initiative that's looking at uh, women and looking at you know the idea of composers specifically, women composers of color, why is it that you can go all the way through your schooling and really never, at least for myself, never play music by a a woman and specifically a woman of color? Mm -hmm. So you ask about divides. I mean, I think the divide can be looked at as, you know, where are the folks (laughs) that that, that look like us? And can we make it so that the folks that are trying to get to those spaces actually have a chance to get there. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you feel like there's a, a solution to that issue? I, th- I think there I think there are multiple solutions. I you know I, I think certainly the discussion around race and racism in the country is always evolving. I'm pretty heartened about some of the discussions about systemic racism specifically in the arts and I'm I'm happy to see that organizations are looking at themselves with a maybe a little bit of a different lens maybe less defensiveness that there's been in the past 
And so I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful that people, you know, like yourself are kind of writing and speaking on some of these issues, kind of popularizing maybe uh, uh, some of the, you know, the ideas and the things that musicians of color go through. Because I think awareness, people just being aware that these things exist sometimes helps out. I also think that um, organizations funding musicians of color, Black musicians, helps. I mean, my goodness, if I hadn't been helped with, you know, instrumental help at some point or or just uh, people sort of taking the extra time to listen, mm-hmm. yeah, I wouldn't be here. I think there's, you know, there's policy, you know, music in the schools is important. I don't know. I, I, I hate to say I don't know what the situation in the D.C. public schools is today uh, around uh, music in the schools, but I hope it's better than it was 20, 30 years ago. I can't talk about today. I, I'm actually a former DC music teacher and, and I taught at uh, a school in Southeast for a couple of years and I had to be let go because the funding was cut for the music program. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad situation. Same thing, like, like you were talking about um, in my early career, the help that I got was instrumental in getting me to, you know, as far as I did, I would never have gone to school. I never would have even considered it without a great deal of help, you know, from outside sources. So I'm right there with you. I totally, hey, I'm right there. Gotcha. (laughs) What is your favorite thing about music? And I know you provide uh, entertainment for a lot of people, but what, what does it actually do for you? Sure. This past couple of weeks, uh, so I play in a trio, the Poulenc Trio. It's oboe, bassoon, and piano. We're one of the few groups that kind of tours the country and plays that repertoire. And, you know, like, like you mentioned, you know, we, we do perform, we, we get to entertain people, but it's especially important, I think. We went to, um, we were this past week at a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Bixby School, and they've got, you know, one of those really giant Midwestern band programs where there were 250 kids that that came to this um, little performance that we did. They all had their masks on, you know, they're all, but they were all so full of attention and full of questions and uh, excited about, you know, the music that they were playing and they wanted to share with us. And for me, one of the things I love about music is that idea that you can, you know, it's such a universal language. You can go any place in the world, you can perform your instrument, you can find people who are trying to do the same thing, no matter what level they're on, you know, and so there's that universal connection that we can get to. It doesn't have to be classical music, it could be any music, but it's that idea that um, you can speak a language that's universal and you can connect to people just like that instantly. I love that about music. That is amazing. Yeah, it really is. You can you can go anywhere, like you said, and there's someone that you can totally relate to. Someone likes it, someone doesn't. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You all are going through the same thing. Right. And, and especially for, so, you know, a black kid from, from D.C., that ability to speak a universal language opens door has opened doors. You know, it, it's you know the idea that you can go into a let's just call it a, a white space, a wealthy space, a space that's really different from your own background, and in some cases get mistaken for you know the help, but then be able to stand up <laughs> and and to say something uh, through your instrument. 
uh, and have people say, oh, okay, well, this person actually does have a voice and they do have you know, a skill and maybe I should listen to or look at them as a whole person. That's a real special thing and it doesn't exist for a lot of folks. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. And, and for listeners at home, you did not see my reaction being, you know, recording. I almost laughed out loud. I had to go away from the microphone when I did that, Brian, when you said, you know, mistook you for the help. I, everyone that I speak to, it, it's the exact same thing. Um, I, I, <laughs> I was uh, at a school, an elementary school one day, and I was walking down the hall, had on my shirt and tie. I'm just, you know, going to the class and um, a little girl asked me if I was one of the cleaning people. And I was like, no, actually, I'm not. Uh, no, I'm going to go teach my music class, but have a nice day. Sure. Yeah, and, and it's it's very common. And, and you say that to people sometimes, and they look at you like, no, things like that don't happen. No, there's no way. There's no way. Yes, there is a way. <laughs> it's common. <laughs> it does. It definitely does. Wow. Okay, well, was, was there ever a time where you were confronted by someone who just didn't get what you were doing, you know, being a young black man? Why are you playing the bassoon? You're never going to be able to do that. And how did you uh, get through to that person? Or was it discouraging to you? Did it have an effect? Love to hear about it. Maybe not, not specifically in that way. Where I have run into issues, and it was early on, it was people saying, and, I, and actually I hear this, you know, more and more now. So, you know, we're going through this place, like I said before, where organizations are looking at, you know, the kind of history of racism in classical music, the history of kind of excluding artists or making audiences feel excluded and that kind of thing. And an argument that I'll hear even today will, will be, you know, well, why do Black people have to go into classical music? You know, Black people have rap Black wow. people have all the other, you know, and, and why would they, you know, people always say to me, why would they even want to do this? You know, why should we do anything to change our space when they have all the popular music? It's a ridiculous idea, but I've heard it, you know, several times recently. And so where that, where that has impacted me, you know, early on, so I love to play the piano. Uh, I'm not a, a great pianist. I'm, a, I'm a, a decent amateur pianist. But I had lessons early on, and I loved Beethoven, and I loved Mozart. I loved all this classical stuff that I was hearing in my house. I wanted to play that stuff. I had teachers, several, say, no, you, you shouldn't play that stuff. Why don't you play jazz? That's wow. your yeah. music. I love jazz. Jazz is great. Nothing against jazz. But it's that, I mean, to me, it's that, kind of bias and prejudice that says, because you look like this, this is what you should play. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the essence of racism, right? I mean, that's the essence of looking at someone and kind of making a judgment that's going to affect how you teach them or how oh, yeah. what opportunities oh, yeah. you put. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's kind of, that's what triggered Oh, you 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 answered it and more. That was great. I want to expand on that a little bit. So when when you would hear things like that, what do you think that stemmed from? I'm, I'm sure it was just um, not meant to be a put down or anything, because I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know the people that were saying that to you, but some people just don't know and they just don't get it. Sure. And can Can you speak to what do you think was the root of that line of questioning or that line of? Yeah, I sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I agree. I don't think it's malicious intent. Mm -hmm. Those those people were not consciously trying to segregate or shunt me into uh, a track but they they truly thought okay so this is 
this other thing is your music. You're not, you're not part of this group. You're part of that group. And so the best thing for you is to stay in that group and do the things that those people do. Like that that's your that's, best interest at heart. Right. <laughs> and so, and that's, I mean, that's just a dangerous line of thinking. It's, it's a dangerous line of thinking because if, if that's true, then what happens if you're teaching young black kids math or if you're teaching them English or a language or physics or any of those places where people haven't been traditionally because they've been traditionally excluded from those places. You can't say, like, I've, I've taken, you know, a thousand years of history where I've kept you out of this space. And because you've been kept out of the space, you don't belong in that space. So I'm not going to teach that to you. That's right. ridiculous. <laughs> and, I, I, and, I am right there with you. Yeah. I agree. And again, it's, it's not malicious. It's just unthoughtful. What is the most challenging piece you've ever had to perform? I'll tell you about a really fun experience with a with a difficult piece. So Stravinsky, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Oh, you know, yeah. It's got the the famous bassoon opening, really high, and you know, a number of times you know played it with orchestras and things like that. You know, it was written a hundred and some years ago, and so bassoon technique has improved, so it's easier to get to those those high notes. But what is still hard is at the end of that piece, the whole orchestra is kind of in unison playing these rhythmic hits. Bum, 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 you know? And so what a lot of orchestras will do is put out a, um, basically, we said I could curse a up jar. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you play in a rest, you got to put a... (laughs) You got to put a dollar in that jar. <laughs> that is awesome. Right? Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. totally doing that. Yeah. Totally. And, and so um, I just remember one time he was playing with that. And I don't know what happened. Just, you know, the mind wasn't there, whatever. <laughs> but I put a whole lot of money in that jar <laughs> for that rehearsal. You know, I bought a couple beers for the, for the brass. That is awesome. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that is awesome. Talk to me a little bit about your uh, work in the uh, tech field. Sure. Yeah. So um, right out of undergrad, I was looking for ways to just support support my time in music. And I actually, for my uh, in my third year in undergrad, I actually dropped out for a year so I could just make a little bit more money to, to go back and finish. And I, I, I did do that. But I was also kind of coming through right at the start of the World Wide Web, the mid-90s, coming up into the 2000s and that kind of thing. And I was, a, here I was this tech nerd. You know, I had these, these programming skills. I all the way through kind of high school, I was doing coding and things like that. And so I started a little company. The company was called University Web Services. And the reason it was called that was because Hopkins University, where I was, was just starting to build their first websites. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to be University Web Services. So when they call me, you know, it's, it might be a, a part of the university, right? You know, let's just. And so I ended up building a lot of the early websites for for that university, you know, psych department and hospital and things like that. And that turned into lots of, um, when the iPhone finally came out, we started doing mobile apps and things like that in the healthcare space. Fast forward to today, I work for a company called MITRE, which is a nonprofit federally funded research and development center or corporation, it's called. And I do health technology data transformation, artificial intelligence. I've got a team of folks that are working on that sort of problem. 
And it's just kind of kept on you know, alongside the music career. Wow, that is fascinating. Um, do you feel like one aspect of your life has bled into the other and helped in, in a certain way as your musicianship? Like, what has it done? What has one done for the other? Sure, absolutely. So going back to that idea that being able to speak that universal language of music and kind of opening doors to spaces that you're not comfortable in. Mm -hmm. I feel like half of business is just making, you know, talking in places that you don't belong. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm sorry, hang on, Brian, you are giving me the best quotes. <laughs> that is awesome. I spend, you know, in, in the tech world, I spend a lot of my time making presentations about, you know, high technology to government uh, agencies, to executives to to groups and things you know and and really it's it's a performance it's kind of taking what you know packaging it in a way that people can understand it making it you know more palatable building that trust kind of being sensitive to the things that are going on around you which is a very you know musician like skill kind of being able to listen and then respond you know and and so i credit music directly for those for those skills which i think is another reason why it's ridiculous to take music out of schools because mm -hmm. an arts education is so fundamental to some of those i mean i guess we call them soft skills but this idea of that you can understand the world around you you can have historical context you can listen and respond and be empathetic to to the people around you those are you need those skills to survive in the world and those aren't always taught in a engineering program or a business program or that kind of thing so i, I think having kind of that arts and humanities background becomes really uh, an edge gives you an edge I agree 100%. I think you said that very, very well. Do you feel that music saved your life? I know that music saved my life. Oh, talk in on it. Talk on several, it, bro. Talk on it, bro. <laughs> in several occasions. Sure. Okay, well, in the neighborhood I grew up in, and it wasn't a terrible neighborhood by any means in D.C. Now, what part of D.C.? So I grew up in Northwest. Grew up, um, if you know D.C., kind of the uh, fifth Jefferson Ingraham, you know, this this kind of um just yeah, south I live in the, Northeast right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. I have to say, so DC has changed a lot in the intervening 30 years or so. But I will have to say, so there are kids that I grew up that are, you know, still incarcerated. There are some that are dead, you know. And these are kids that I played with, you know, and and uh they we were doing the same things. We were in the same school. We had the same stuff going on at the same, you know, family situation. It's just I got to go play this instrument. And because I got to go play this instrument, I got to see parts of the world that they will never see. I got to have experiences that they will never have. And that's just by you know the grace of God and you know my parents putting me in that program. There's not that much special about me that's different from from those kids except the music. So that's, I mean, that's just one kind of overarching example, but it's important. Give me more, give me more, give me more. Speak on it. It's, oh, it's so yeah. funny you said that. It's I, I, I literally have the exact same quote. I'm not even kidding. Kids that I played with, you know, are in prison or dead right now. And the only reason I'm not is because I started playing violin when I was nine. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, when I talk to other uh, black men, musicians, classical musicians, and okay, there's not a lot of us, 
But when I talk to a lot of them, a lot of them have that same story. Look, I've been to jail twice and not because of some heinous crime, but, you know, sometimes just sort of being in a place where, oh, you know, we felt like uh, locking folks up today. Being able to kind of speak in that situation to sort of articulate that, you know, um, you know, no, this is, you've you got it wrong. This is, you, you've made a mistake, this kind of thing. I pull that from some of the musical experiences. I would like to know what you are currently doing and where we can check you out. Sure. Yeah, thank you. I play with this group that I mentioned before, the Poulenc Trio, P-O-U-L-E-N-C-T-R-I-O dot org. In Baltimore, where I live, uh, I play with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra. And so there's going to be bunches of concerts there. You know, I'm also still doing the, the technology, probably getting back to some speaking in the next little while. And so you can certainly look me up, brianyoung.info. I uh, usually have kind of information about what's going on there. The other one that I will mention, uh, I'm the president of the board of a, a concert series in Columbia, Maryland, Candlelight Concert Society. Certainly want to have people come out to those and, and check them out. We will certainly check those out. I'm going to flip it on you just for a minute. You can ask me anything you want right now. I'm just so impressed by the background that you've kind of brought to bear here, that you're reaching out and talking to people. And also, I'm just really curious about about the book. How did you come to that? And what was the process like? Wow. Okay. When I said you could ask me a question, I didn't know I was going to have to get all, uh, yeah. Okay. So thank you. This is now the Brian Young Show. <laughs> <laughs> I am your guest, Brendan Slocum. Now, um, it, it's, it's uh, thank you, first off. The book, you know, 2020 was a really jacked up year and uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on, you know, as a musician, you know, we weren't playing anymore. And I had basically stopped practicing because there was really nothing, you know, after rehearsals had ended in person. Okay, I'll practice a little bit on my own. Then I got kind of stale. It's like, well, I'm not really working for anything. Let me see what I can do. I found an article that said selling books in the age of COVID. Oh, let me check this out. I reached out to an agent, read some of my stuff, said, yep, this is terrible, but you know what? You got a nice voice, so why don't you try writing something that you know? I'll take a look at it. Okay, I'll try that. And I started writing what I knew, which was basically um, the story of how I got started and grew up in some of the uh, instances that I had to deal with and, and some of the um, discriminatory things that were going on in the world of music that I had personally dealt with. And it ended up being a story that I am very, very proud of, the violin conspiracy. And, you know, I never thought I'd be able to do it, but I have a phenomenal team and they brought out the best in me, not only my team, but the people that I know and people that I love just really helped me to get to this point. And it is a true blessing. And it all started when I was nine years old and that lady came in with the violin. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll try it. Sure, why not? That's fantastic. What a great story. And, you know, I, I bet people are, are, because I am, so impressed about, well, not the, just the fact that you had the idea to do it, but then you did it. You followed through with it, which is, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think that's most of um, any kind of success in life. Absolutely. Following through yeah. and doing it. And also, um, you know, were, were you a, has writing been kind of central to your life? No, um, 
I am in a band. I'm the singer in a band, and you know, we 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 needed songs. It was like, well, <laughs> okay, we can't keep doing all these covers. We should probably do some original stuff. Hey, does anybody have anything? No, I don't write songs. No, I'm not doing that. Well, somebody's got to do it, so I'll, you know, give it a try. First song that I wrote, I thought it was terrible because not everything rhymed. I was like, oh, I'm a failure at this. I can't do this. And then I started writing more and, you know, writing songs and and that's really what did it. And then I just kind of got the idea, you know what, not everything has to rhyme. It just has to mean something. And that's really where I, I started. And I'm a huge science fiction fan. And I'm a comic book guy. If you were, I'm in my office right now. And as I'm looking over my right shoulder, just boxes and boxes and boxes and stacks of comic books. Oh, that's cool. I've, I've, you know, I just, I've always loved science fiction and comic books and everything. And believe it or not, I feel a little silly saying this, but I actually learned a lot of vocabulary through my comic books. I was like, what does this word mean? Is this a made up word because this is a comic? No, that's that. Wow. That's a real term. Okay. I'm going to look this up. And so I just think if, if I can get something out of a comic book and I can write a song, why can't I do this? I can try it. And actually being a musician, you know, you have that whole stick to you know, you, you, you got to practice. You have to do this every day. You have to be on a regular schedule. You got to do it. You got to work through it. Even though it's challenging, you got to do it. And, you know, there were times writing that book where I was just like, I can't do this. I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to give up. And I got a lot of encouragement. No, you're doing so great. You can do it. Just do it. Just do it. Just, you know, what would you do if you were practicing? I was like, if I was practicing, I would throw this thing down and walk out right now. But (laughs) (laughs) that's not the case. I I committed to it. So I'm going to stick with it and do it. No, that's, I mean, that's so powerful. And I mean, first of all, I, I agree. I mean, I think comics are a, a literature that a lot of people dismiss at their peril, right? Because there's, oh, yeah. you know, the words and the stories and the ideas are just so, so deep. And then I'm going to take one of the, the quotes that you just said, you know, Uh-oh. it doesn't have to rhyme, it just has to mean something. That's beautiful. And that's, I mean, that really speaks to, I think so many people are focused on success, but they don't think about all the failure you have to go through to get to that. I mean, right. and that's so, I mean, or not even just failure, but it's going to, you know, as a musician to get to any, you know, to get to that concert, to get to whatever, mm-hmm. you got to be terrible. You got to suck for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, and, and, and it's, and it feels, it doesn't feel good. It feels bad. It feels, um, it's in some cases terrible, but if you keep going, you're going to get some, you know, you're, you're going to get closer. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you are living proof of that. And I would like to thank you, Mr. Brian Young, for your time and sharing your stories with us today. I think this was fantastic. And I'm looking forward to hearing and hopefully seeing you perform in person one day. Now, when I do come and check out the Poulenc Trio, I don't want you to go and I'm waving in the audience. Hey, 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 I know that guy. Don't just brush me off. All right. That's that will not happen. No, I'm going to wave. I'm going to stop the show. <laughs> I'm going to say Brendan Slocum is in the audience, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay, Brendan, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, this has been a real pleasure. It's really great to, to talk to you. And, and uh, just congratulations on the book and, and what you're doing. I can't wait to, to read it. I'll make sure you get a copy. Wonderful. I will send it to you. Thank you so much, sir. We really appreciate it. Thank you. How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum. 
produced by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Eric Coltnow. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my novel, The Violin Conspiracy, check out my website, brendanslocum.com. I'll see you next time. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.